Okay, so we're in Revelation chapter 20. We're going to take it down to verse 10 this evening. And I will just give a few words of introduction and then we'll read a couple of the verses and start making our way through. So as we come out of chapters 18 and 19, we have seen the destruction of Babylon that's representative of the the city that... um, has housed the Antichrist and the false religion of the last days. We have seen that come to its destruction. We've seen in chapter 19 the armies that gather together to war against God and destroy the nation of Israel, that they're wiped out with the sword that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And then the Lord snatches up um, the Antichrist and the false prophet and he throws them into the lake of fire forever and ever. And he comes, puts his foot upon the Mount of Olives, it splits in two, and he rescues the nation of Israel. Now what? Well, there's one more person that kind of is out there, right? Um, We've talked about that unholy trinity of evil, who you had Satan, and you had the Antichrist, and how you had the false prophet. Well, two of the three are taken care of, but what about Satan? What about that one who has deceived the nations and led that first rebellion against God? Um, of those angels that were in heaven. He is dealt with. um, And that really is a two-stage process that we're going to see. Um, And we get stage one of the Lord dealing with Satan. And he will be bound for a thousand years. Um, And then we also continue to see the resurrections that are going to take place in this chapter and the judgment that will take place at the great white throne. We're not going to get to that tonight, but all of that is in chapter 20. Um, no believer will be at the great white throne judgment. Um, you'll be at the Bema seat judgment, but not the great white throne. That is the wrong line to be in. Um, so then um, you make that choice of what judgment you're going to experience, whether you allow Jesus to be the one that judges your, uh, uh, had your soul judged in his body on the cross. Your works will be re, uh, revisited at the Bema seat, but at the great white throne, those who have rejected Jesus Christ and his atoning work they will be judged. Two very different judgments. Let's read verses 1 through 3, and here we see that Satan is bound. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So as we look at this, and and, and you know, these two verses here to begin with. Well, let me read the next verse two, verse three. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So we begin looking uh, at Satan's binding at verses one and two, where it's noted that it's for a thousand years that he is going to be um, incarcerated. He goes to uh, the jailhouse for a thousand years. Um, what we read here in verse 1 is, then I saw an angel coming down. So the word then, um, or it can also be translated and, um, but the word then is, uh, uh, it's not definitive on the original language that this is a word that indicates a uh, sequential or chronological event. However, it certainly can mean that. And based upon everything that we know, it makes perfect logical sense that this is referring to the next event. 
We've had the false prophet dealt with. We've had the Antichrist dealt with. We've had the nations that have gathered around the world to war against God dealt with all in chapter 19. Chapter 18, we've seen that city that's deceived the nations and killed the saints. Um, Ancient uh, uh, Babylon that's been revitalized, destroyed. It makes sense that the the then of verse 1 is referring to the next person on the list. And so it is significant because many do not see the book of Revelation as having any kind of chronological uh, value or input. Um, That's not been the case. I mean, we have referred to days and weeks and months and years. Um, The Bible has gone out of its way to make this statement. So although the language does not demand a strict chronological um, uh, set of events here, it makes perfect sense that it is that, and the word certainly is used in this way in many places. Well, what happens to him? Well, he is uh, grabbed and he is chained by another angel. Another angel. Satan is a fallen angel, and another angel, empowered by the Lord and sent by the Lord, can easily handle this one who is called Satan and has deceived the nations. He's going to be chained and he's going to be thrown into a bottomless pit. Those two words in English, bottomless pit, make up one Greek word. We've talked about this as we've gone through the book of Revelation. It is a Greek word, abuso. And he is going to be thrown into this holding pen, this um, dungeon of God, if you will, where Satan is going to be held awaiting final judgment. Final judgment will come. This is not final judgment for Satan. Antichrist, false prophet, final judgment, lake of fire. But Satan's going to be held for a thousand years. Other angelic beings, fallen angelic beings, have been incarcerated at this place and will be there when he arrives. I wonder how they're going to feel about him. The deceiver is going to come among those who've been held in judgment. Well, we have read of this same location in Revelation chapter 9 where we read about those locusts, those demons that come out that have the shape and the form that is likened to um, these powerful locusts that uh, come up and they come out of this shaft called the Abuso. Um, Revelation 17.8 speaks of the beast who comes out of the Abuso. The demons at Gadara begged Jesus to not send them into, you guessed it, the Abuso, or the bottomless pit. You can look at that in Luke 8.31. And they say before their time. So there's a place that fallen angelic beings are being held, but not all of them. Satan is not there now. There are many demons that um, are part of his ranks that are out to deceive and tempt, and they are free. But there are some that are held in judgment. And this is where Satan's new Um, jailhouse or his jailhouse will be for a thousand years so we read the thousand years and I think we're going to find a reference to the word this period of time maybe six times in these uh, short verses and um, this is a probably chapter 20 is the most disputed portion of the book of revelation And it's disputed among Bible-believing Christians that love the Lord. I don't want to, in presenting different views, I just want to say right at the front, I know they're Christians, I know that they love the Lord, and I know that they're looking for the second coming of Christ, um, but have different views. So there's three views that um, 
that come into play when we talk about this thousand years. One is a, uh, the premillennial, millennial meaning thousand. So um, a premillennialism teaches that there will be a literal thousand years that Christ will set up and reign over uh, that, will, that will happen after the Great Tribulation. Postmillennialism takes the view um, that this is going to be maybe a, a thousand years. Um, there's different views. Um, but they believe that this is something that is going to take, uh, is taking place right now. Um, and so the thousand years is kind of, you'll find people saying different things. But they actually would believe that the thousand years is, is happening right now. And that uh, Christ is reigning through his church. And through evangelism, this world is going to get better and better and better and better. And eventually it will be so good, it will be a place where the Lord can come back. And that is called post-millennialism. Um, the early church had one view. Um, the early church fathers had one view. And that was a pre-millennial view. They believed that Christ would come back and set up a physical earthly reign upon the earth. Of course, um, Augustine didn't, and that was a, a view that's still held today. Um, um, you know, he was an amillennialist and didn't believe that there was a, a, a literal one um, of any sort, um, and it's just kind of an allegorical um, look at the idea that uh, Christ's kingdom was established and defeated Satan at the cross, and so they don't look for any kind of real um, physical element to it. So those are the three views, pre-mill, post-mill, and all-millennialism. Now, I, I, I cling to a pre-mill uh, point of view that there will be a thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth where Satan is bound following the tribulation um, inaugurated at the second coming of Christ. And there are two main reasons why I believe we should take this passage literally, and not figuratively or allegorically. Number one, there are so many Old Testament prophecies that speak of a time of a great uh, a blessing of the nation of Israel, ruling and um, nations coming from around the world to hear what they have to say. That ten men will grab the arm of one, one Jew and say, teach us all that you know. Well, there's been times down through the history where ten men have grabbed one Jew, but not to be instructed, but to do harm. But there's coming a day. So yeah, all kinds of promises by the prophets, specifically among these prophecies and, and, and such. But the second point is there are four covenants that God made with Israel that are awaiting fulfillment. Four covenants. What are those four covenants? Well, the first one is the one he made with Abraham. You can read about this in Genesis 12, Genesis 13, and Genesis 15. And here God made a covenant. He made a promise uh, with him. He promised, number one, that he would bless him and make his name great. Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. And secondly, God gave promises to make the descendants of Abraham a great nation. And that the land of Canaan would be their perpetual inheritance. Genesis 12, 7. Genesis 13, 14, and 15. The third promise in this covenant 
is that it's a universal promise that, would, that God made with Abraham that he would bless all the families of the earth. The promises that are made to Israel are not fulfilled allegorically in the church. They're not spiritually fulfilled. So many will look at this covenant made um, with Abraham and his descendants and they will say, well, you see, the church is now the one that is um, fulfilling the promises that are made to Abraham. But this is not what the Bible teaches us. No Jew reading, Abraham wouldn't have thought of this for a second. As a matter of fact, even the Apostle Paul did not think of this. And Jeremiah the prophet, in Jeremiah 31, verses 35 through 37, speaks about the certainty of the covenants that have been made with Israel. In verse 35 it says, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon, and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the seas, and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. But those things haven't happened. When you got up this morning, the sun was there. As we go to bed tonight, you're going to see the moon and the stars. We don't know where the outer limits are of, of, of space. And nobody has been able to chart the, you know, the, the map of the, the, um, the center of the earth. These things have not happened. Therefore, the promises that God made to Israel are still intact. So it's the Abrahamic covenant. Things that are yet to be fulfilled in that. Um, another covenant that God made with Israel is the land covenant. Sometimes it's called the Palestinian covenant, but that language probably is a little confusing in our geo, geopolitical um, time. So the land covenant found in Deuteronomy 29 um, all the way through to chapter 30, verse 20 of Deuteronomy. This covenant promises the inheritance of the land of Canaan to the descendants of Abraham and um, is in many ways like an extension of the Abrahamic covenant. And it's unconditional. In other words, it's going to be fulfilled because God made it. Um, one author says, uh, the second covenant is a Palestinian covenant or land covenant that spoke of a worldwide regathering of Jews and repossession of the land following their dispersion. And so that will be fulfilled at the time that we're reading about here in the book of Revelation. Another covenant that is yet to be fulfilled that's unconditional is the Davidic covenant. Now, this one is so strong in its language. This is the covenant that God made with David, a man after God's own heart, there in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in this covenant, God promised that David's throne would be an everlasting throne. And that one of his descendants would sit upon the throne forever 2 Samuel 7:13 It's an everlasting covenant and there will be one that will sit upon the throne forever. <laughs> well, creator God is the one who's made this covenant and it is yet to be fulfilled. A another passage we can turn to um, is turn to Psalm 89. Psalm 89 verse 35 and 36 
and 37. Actually, we'll back up to verse 34 just to pick up the language here. It says, My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I've sworn by my holiness, listen to this language, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever. How else can you interpret this other than to say this is a promise made to David and it is going to be fulfilled? God even went to lengths to say, I'm not going to lie. Keep on going. His seed shall endure for how long? Forever. And his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. Selah. Think on this for a second. The Lord is going to fulfill this. And Luke 1, verses 31 through 33 when the angel announces the birth of Jesus, he references this and, and talks about how Jesus is going to uh, come and be born to Mary. In verse 32, he says, He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob. How long do you think it says there? Forever. To, a, to David, through the Psalms, and then... To Mary herself, the promise is given that this is going to be fulfilled. So the covenants, they scream that this must be fulfilled. There must be a reign of the Lord upon the earth. The fourth covenant, which you are probably the most familiar with, is the new covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31 talks about this. It prophesied of a day in the future when God would establish a new way in which he dealt with Israel. And it would be different than the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant was conditional. You do this and I'll do that. You don't do that and I will do this. But the New Covenant is different. It is unconditional. Jeremiah declares that the covenant would be written upon their hearts and that they would obey the Lord. It is clear that this covenant has not been realized by the nation of Israel yet. However, one day it will be. Turn with me over to Revelation chapter 11, and then we'll get back into our text here. But again, such a disputed passage. I wanted to take a little more time uh, this evening to explain why um, I and many others hold to the fact that this is a literal thousand-year reign of Christ and a literal thousand years of binding of Satan. In Revelation chapter 11, I don't have the time to go through all of it, but let me just give you three verses that will give you a feel and a texture for what the Apostle Paul is saying. Verse 1, I say then, has God cast away, cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. So Verse 2, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Skip down to verse 15. And we read, For if their, if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will be their acceptance? What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So he's looking. Yeah, there's, they are not following the Lord now. But they're going to be reconciled. So then in Revelation, uh, Romans 11 verse 25, it says, for I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved, 
as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So God is not finished with them. God is going to fulfill. So when we talk about this being a reign uh, from the post-millennial view right now, where is the significance of, of Israel in that? Where is Jesus upon the throne? Jesus is, is not sitting upon the throne of David. He's sitting on a throne in heaven, but not upon the throne of David, which these prophecies are concerned with. Uh, the all-millennial view, which doesn't even really look for anything um, physical, it's just an allegorical. Again, how do you deal with these promises? Listen, we believe in eternal life because of the covenant we have with the Lord. <laughs> okay? We, we attach, the Lord has attached um, the forever statements, the eternal statements to our covenant and relationship we have with him through Jesus Christ, the new covenant. How long do you think it's going to last? Well, you're saying forever. Why do you say forever? Well, because God has said forever. Oh, so when God says forever to us, it means forever. But when he says to Israel forever, it doesn't mean forever? The burden of proof to make this a subjective or an allegorical interpretation is upon the one who presents it as such. Because human language, and especially scripture, goes out of its way to speak in literal terms. And I will very lovingly just say, those that hold to an all-millennial view, or even to a post-millennial view to a lesser degree, are inconsistent, I'm sorry, I'm doing it with kindness, are inconsistent with the way they interpret Scripture. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, speaks about how the, the Messiah would be born in what city? Bethlehem. We read that in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that the ruler would come who would come out of Bethlehem. Every Christian believes that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We celebrate the prophetic accuracy of that scripture, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But if you back up a little bit earlier in, in, in Micah chapter 4, verse 7, it says that the Lord is going to reign over Zion, forever. So why in Micah 4, 7 do we say figurative, but then when we get to Micah chapter 5, 2, we say literal? How do we know when to go from literal to figurative when there is no statement of such in the text itself? This is why I say this is an inconsistent approach to interpreting Scripture. And again, the burden of proof to show that this is subjective and not an objective truth that God will uh, fulfill his promises to Israel is upon the one who presents it. And I think these brothers and sisters who love the Lord have done a very poor job of trying to communicate that. So when we read about this thousand years, I took a long detour here. Why do I believe this is a thousand years? Well, because there are many prophecies that were made in the Old Testament that are yet to be fulfilled for the nation of Israel. Specifically, there are four covenants that God has made that are all unconditional, that are yet to be fulfilled. And I believe in a consistent, literal interpretation of Scripture. And yes, I understand metaphors, and I understand hyperboles, and all the rest. But all of those metaphors and all of those hyperboles are meant to communicate a literal truth. And if we're going to vary from a literal truth, there ought to be some indication 
an overwhelming indication that we should do that. Well, let's get back to the book of Revelation. Satan has been thrown in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. And what is the result of Satan's incarceration? There in verse 3. Um, he's going to be shut up. He's going to have a seal set on him. There at the, that abuso will have a, the seal of God. Don't open. Um, and he can deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. Then he's going to be released. So one of the things that's going to happen to Satan during this incarceration is his freedom of movement will be gone. He's going to be tied up with a chain. Um, is that a literal chain? Well, you know, I don't, I don't think that it will be um, because Satan is a spirit being. But if, he is, if, if this is going to be a literal chain, then God will have no problem putting some material substance to him so that chain can actually wrap around him. But he's going to be bound. He's going to be held. He's not going to have freedom to move about. Move about to do what? To deceive the nations. Is Satan free to deceive now? Well, if you're an all-millennialist, you would say, well, it's since Jesus died on the cross, and rose from the dead, he defeated Satan. And we certainly would hold to that he defeated Satan too. But we have, do not see all things in subjection to him yet that will be in subjection. And so they would say that for the last 2,000 years, the gospel has been going out. And the, um, the nations that would try to hold back the gospel can't do this. And it continues to go. And so in this way, he is not able to deceive the nations anymore. Well, that is certainly an element of uh, truth to it. But when we read that he will not be able to deceive the nations for these thousand years, it seems like it's much more than just an element of deception that's removed. It's complete removal. <laughs> we read in 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That sounds like a ton of freedom right there. He's going wherever he wants to, not bound by a chain, and he is seeking to devour. He devours through deception. Ephesians 6, 11 through 13, talking about um, Satan and his armies right now. It says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. If he's bound, why am I fighting him? But against principalities. And against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against the hosts of wickedness and the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand. Well, wait a minute. This sounds like language that I'm going to be tussling and I'm going to be fighting and I'm going to be battling against Satan. And, and that is what Peter says. This is what Paul says to the Ephesians. But when John writes, he says, there's going to come a time when he's going to be bound for a thousand years. Those who try to argue that Satan is bound right now, um, the all-millennial view, really have provided, I believe, an insufficient answer to what we read in Scripture. To the post-millennial brother or sister who believes things are going to get better and better and better, um, that's not what we read in Scripture. We don't read better and better and better. We read about deception in the last days. We read about maybe not even the elect being able to withstand deception. That's how bad things are going to get. It will be better. 
when the Lord comes back. But between now and when the Lord comes back, there may be days of brightness, there may be days of revival, there may be days when nations turn to the Lord and grace is poured out and we will rejoice in every one of them and we will pray for more and more of them. However, we know how it's going to end. And it does not end by things getting better. It, get, it gets worse in the last days with the Antichrist and with the false prophet. We move on in verse 4. We see that, Christ, that Satan has been incarcerated, but Christ is going to reign on the earth. Um, and we read, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the, his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for, there it is again, a thousand years. A thousand years. This is how long um, is being referred to over and over again. So Christ is going to reign on, on the earth. But notice that there are these thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Who is the they and the them of the first half of verse 4? This is the church on the throne. This is the church on the throne. 1 Corinthians 6.2 says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? 1 Corinthians 6.2. You might want to write it down. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge in the smallest matter? So Paul was exhorting them, take care of your own business and don't go taking one another to secular courts. Revelation 3.21. To him who overcomes, I will grant... I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So those that are sitting upon these thrones, it's, it's the church of Jesus Christ. Now, who was the, the next group? As we move on in verse uh, 4, it says, Then I saw the souls of those. Who are the those? Who are the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness? They are the ones that are clearly living during the time of the, of the tribulation because they're dealing with the beast and the false prophet. Um, uh, the, uh, yeah, the false prophet. They're not taking the mark of the beast. These are the tribulation saints. These are the ones that do not bend their knee when the Antichrist and his armies come and say, worship the Antichrist or Lose your head. And they will say, then lose my head it is. I'm not going to bow. And these will be those that will also um, be with the Lord. And um, we read here, they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So you have these two groups that are there with the Lord. But who are they going to reign over? <laughs> right? The armies have been wiped out. Um, of, of the nations. There's been all kinds of plagues. In the early chapters, we, we took the time to talk about what would it be like if a third of the world was, po was missing. I mean, you have a, you know, a quarter of the population of planet Earth remaining um, after all of these plagues. I mean, you, who's going to be around to rule and to reign? Well, for the answer to that, you've got to study Matthew 25 specifically verses 31 through 46. You've read this before, and it's the judgment of the sheep and the goats. You're familiar with it. Jesus is talking about those who uh, did it, to uh, gave a cup of cold water to one of his uh, brethren in his name, um, that these will be welcomed in. To those who um, were harsh and treated Israel poorly, 
that they will be sent off into everlasting destruction. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. You follow the chronology. Matthew 24 has the second coming of Christ. This is, Matthew 25 is an event that happens after the second coming of Christ, which is what we're kind of talking about right now. Who are these that are going to be in the millennial kingdom? We know that Jesus is going to be there. We know that the church is going to be on uh, thrones and their judgment will be committed to them. We know that those that are beheaded for their testimony, that they are going to be ruling and reigning with Christ for a thousand years. But who over who? Well, um, we know that there are going to be many uh, people that come into, listen to this, many people will come into the thousand-year reign of Christ who uh, treated and showed kindness to Israel, who did not follow the false prophet, who made it through all the plagues, and these will be the ones who repopulate planet Earth for the next thousand years. They are the sheep, and the goats are the ones that were anti-Semitic, and the ones who go into everlasting destruction. Isaiah 65 verse 20 gives us a little indication about this. It says, No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. So the idea is that there's going to be a longevity of life that's going to return. This is the way it began during creation. People live for a thousand years. And during the reign of Christ, life is going to be different. The world's going to be um, uh, taken care of. It's going to be rehabilitated. That's something I'm really looking forward to seeing is planet Earth rehabilitated after all the devastation. But then for the next thousand years, those that have come into this kingdom... The ones that in the parable where Jesus says go into the highways and the byways and bring them into the marriage uh, supper of the Lamb, these, right, these are going to be the ones that are repopulating planet Earth. It's not the church, it's not the tribulation saints, and it's not faithful Israel who has believed. This is a different group. So it's over that group. Now, we're going to read here in just a moment that they can be, their descendants are going to be tempted. We are not going to be tempted again. We will not have to deal with this. But for a thousand years, there will be this beautiful reign of the Lord assisted by his church and those tribulation saints. Now, um, I don't have the reference, actually. I, um, I, I looked it up and I didn't write it down. But Jesus promises to the 12 apostles that they will rule over the 12 tribes of Israel. So there's uh, many references to um, this, this time period in Scripture. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. And here we read about two resurrections. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. So we have two different uh, resurrections. So we have different groups of people. The first resurrection is not um, a one-time event. And this is important, and I'll prove it to you. This is not a one-time event. Like, at this hour, there will be the resurrection of all those who ever died and came to life again. Um, This represents... 
uh, more of an age of resurrection than it does of a, um, an hour of resurrection, if you will. Um, the resurrection, the first resurrection, it speaks of, first of all, of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. He is the first one to be a part of the resurrection. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus is the first one. When Jesus rose from the dead, during the days in which he would, was walking the earth, something interesting ha- happened that we have hardly any information about other than a single verse that talks about it. Matthew 27, verse 52. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Now, I wish we had more information. We don't have it. Uh, why did that happen? I don't know. Maybe just to give kind of a picture of what was going to come. Whatever the reason, and whatever happened, there was another resurrection shortly after Jesus, and it was for many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep. So the, the first resurrection began on the day that Jesus rose that first Easter Sunday morning. Then shortly after that, Matthew 27, 52, there were others. And 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17, it refers to the resurrection that's going to happen to those believers who have died and are raptured up to meet the Lord in the air, that they will receive their bodies. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, another, other, another part of the resurrect, uh, resurrection, the third phase of it. But then in Revelation eleven eleven, it refers to the two witnesses that are resurrected from the dead. And also, we know there's going to be a resurrection that will take place for those that had been martyred um, during the time of the uh, tribulation, and we just read about them. So when we say, um, how many resurrections are there? There's only two, but that first resurrection is one that has been going on, if you will, for for 2,000 years. Now, it's not like every day we see a resurrection, but we're awaiting that one big resurrection in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. These that will be resurrected in the first are being resurrected unto eternal life. But who are the ones that are a part of the second resurrection, which does not sound very good? Over the second death, um, we are blessed and holy as he who has part of the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. Everyone dies once, at least once. If you believe in Jesus, you will physically die once and then you'll be resurrected. If you don't believe in Jesus, you will physically die. You will be resurrected to then be put to death eternally or forever. And that is the second death. So, born once, die twice. Born twice, born physically, born spiritually, you die once. And that is only physically. So this is what is being referred to. Now, the reason I kind of pause there for a little bit to talk about this, because many who do not believe um, um, in this, uh, you know, a pre-mill, pre-trib point of view will often ask this question, well, how many resurrections do you believe in? Because you see, if it's a first resurrection and you are saying that the church is going to be resurrected in 1 Thessalonians 4, before the Great Tribulation, and then you have another resurrection that happens after the, um, the 
the seven-year tribulation, that would be a second resurrection. How many resurrections do you believe in? They would say there's only one resurrection, and they're true in that statement. But it is a resurrection that began with Jesus, was experienced by Old Testament saints, will be experienced by the church before the rapture, um, before the tribulation, at the rapture, and then also there will be the resurrection after um, the, this time, after the, the coming of Christ. So, if you want to go down that line of argument, you have to deal with these other passages. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. It says, When the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. And we all sigh and say, but why? <laughs> but why, why does that have to happen? And we'll go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. So Satan will be loosed to deceive again. And we um, find this amazing. Uh, I find it amazing, less amazing that Satan is released, but more amazing that people would follow him again. Not just a few, whose number is as the sand of the sea. In those thousand years, with extended life, without disease, without sickness, with very few people dying, it would seem, massive world population explosion. And the descendants of those sheep that first came in, who I believe are saved, their descendants, their physical descendants, because they'll be marrying and giving in marriage and repopulation of the earth by those people that come in to the kingdom through, out of the great tribulation, they will be repopulated. It's their descendants and their descendants' descendants. And on down the line, those are the ones, not Christians, not the ones ruling and reigning, not the tribulation saints, not Israel that gets saved at the second coming, but upon the descendants of those um, sheep that have come in. And they will be led astray again. You know, some people say, well, if we just had a perfect environment, then people would always, they would follow, you know, God. And there wouldn't be crime. There wouldn't be this. Well, that's the way the world began. And guess what? People fell. That's the way it's going to be again. With Jesus ruling and reigning. And they are still going to rebel. And they are going to um, be uh, deceived by him. Now we have this interesting reference in verse 8, halfway through to Gog and Magog. We read about this in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And there's this same um, reference to Gog and Magog. So is this the same battle? Is Ezekiel 38 and 39 actually supposed to be happening here in Revelation chapter 20? And, and, and my answer is, no, I really don't think so. I believe these are two distinct battles with one common thread between them, the same spirit that stirs up the nations to come and fight against the Lord. Um, in Ezekiel 38 and 39, there's going to be the same spirit that comes and stirs up the descendants um, and after Satan is released. We'll have to wait and see. I really don't have um, a clear answer, but that seems to be the best that I've come across. Verses 9 and 10. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, which, of course, would be Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Because who's ruling and reigning there? It's the Lord. He came the first time, 
and they put him to death. He came the second time, and the world gathered together to fight him. When they get a third shot at it, they're going to again come against the beloved city where Jesus is ruling and reigning. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And that is the end of that joker. He cannot deceive anymore. I know when we talk about this, there are times people say, well, does that mean that for me as a believer that I could be deceived by Satan after the rapture, after the tribulation, after the kingdom? Absolutely not. You are in a glorified body. You will not be subjected. No believer will be subjected to that again. It, you will be Teflon to temptation. We have been um, delivered from the penalty of sin. We are being delivered from the power of sin. And one day, we will be delivered from the presence of sin. And when we are with the Lord and at the rapture of the church, we will be delivered from the presence never to sin again. It's only the descendants of those who come out of the great tribulation that will be tempted and will be deceived again. You know, when we read this, it's kind of like, really? I mean, this, this, this sounds like a lot of movies we've seen, right? This sounds like fairy tale, but this is no fairy tale. That's what fairy tales are made out of. Fairy tales are made out of this great reality. This is the reality. This is no fairy tale. But I understand when we read it, it sounds like, wow, there's like these kings and these dark places and the abuso and these battles among spirits and deception and all the rest. And, and I understand it's hard to think of that as happening anytime soon, but it is coming. One day we will see the Lord return. We will be with him. We will see him defeat the Antichrist and the false prophet. We will see him rescue Israel. We will watch him sing and rejoice over Israel as he makes his way to the Temple Mount, finding that fulfillment of the promise to Israel that one day she would all be saved. We will watch him um, carry out the judgment of the Gentiles that have come into the throughout of the tribulation into the beginning of the kingdom. And we'll watch that judgment of the sheep and the goat. And then we will rule and we will reign with him upon the earth for a thousand years. And then we will all shake our head as Satan is released to come out to deceive one more time. Every man, every woman must make a decision about Jesus. These that are in the uh, millennial kingdom that have, are the descendants of the sheep that came out of that judgment, they have not made that decision yet. The tribulation saints have. You know, all Israel who is believing, they've made that belief statement. They've made that confession. The church has made that confession. But those who haven't, they must make a decision who's going to be their Lord and who they're going to follow. And so this is why Satan will be released. He's like, but why? Because the Lord knows there is going to be a huge number of those that will come into eternal life. And so he's willing, just like he was with us, to extend that grace out, even though we'll have to deal with Satan one more time, that he might bring more. That he might bring more. You think about the sacrifice that Jesus has made on the cross 
And the, pay, the, the payoff, if you will, for Jesus' sacrifice is your, yours and mine and the world's confession of Jesus as Lord and Savior. It, 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 more people receiving the benefit and the blessing of his sacrifice. And it's, if you will, it's like the Lord's like, I want to get as much out of that investment and that sacrifice that my son made as I possibly can. So I'm willing to bind Satan for a thousand more years and see who else will come. Of course, he knows already. But this is the future. We're going to watch it happen. This is the hope that we have. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing story and reality that you have brought us into. Lord, we confess, we, we, we read it, we believe it. We know it's going to happen. But Lord, it is hard for us. We do see through a mirror, mirror dimly right now. And we don't understand all of the events and all the timing. And we do our best and we have different opinions. But we know you're coming again. And we pray that we will be ready for that day when you come for us. And so, Lord, stir us up. Stir up our hope, I pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.